Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord your God of your ancestors promised you. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road, when you are going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe season. I want to start um, before we, we dive in with um, a little off script warning. How's that? You okay with that? Um, there's been a move here recently on social media of, um, of, of some statements that I feel like we, we need to address. And I'm thankful that our colleague Teddy Ray has, has brought some of those out and, and contradicted those. And the thought goes something along the light of, you know, if you have your Bible and the nature and all that kind of stuff, you don't really need to go to church. You can go and you can have a personal relationship with God out there in nature and be just fine. You don't need this group. And uh, I'm, again, I'm really thankful for Teddy because he just went after it <laughs> um, and um, gave me some voice to some things that I've been thinking of. There's some truth in that. We should find God in nature and when we go and leave this place. But there's also an insidious lie in that that says that we don't need this time right here. That church can be something that's really an optional just add-on that we do to the week. And that's a very dangerous, dangerous thought. Um, we need this time. We, we need this together because together as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we gather and we lift up his name and we glorify him together and we stretch and we grow. But ultimately, we don't exist for one another or, or this place doesn't exist just for this time. We exist. Our purpose is for those who are not yet part of our family. So leaving this place and um, knowing that people need the Lord, as Lauren sang for us earlier, is an invitation for us to leave here and to go into nature and to go and to see God and to share his love and to share this revelation that we learn about from the Magi. That's important. But this time matters deeply. So I want to encourage you at the beginning of the year, don't skip church. Not just because, oh, well, that looks good for you, preacher. No, I don't care about that. I'm entrusted to make sure um, 
I train you up in the way that we should go. So don't skip church, beloved. Because when you do, you buy into that insidious lie that we don't need each other. I don't know about you, but I need you. And like it or not, you need me. Let's pray. God, we love you and we give you thanks for this time, this time that matters so, so very much. And we ask, God, that as we explore, as we've already um, spent time with you in song and and through the reading of your word and through affirming our faith together and through prayer, Lord, I I pray that now as we explore your word a little bit more, as we, we grow, as we listen to the spoken word, that we would stretch even more, that we would sense your presence and your peace in a mighty, mighty way that we would leave this place knowing that we have been with brothers and sisters, family, linking arms, lifting up your name, but also knowing that we have been sent out to go and to be the church, to reveal you to a lost and dying world. So, Lord, come and use this time to do that. Speak to your people. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O God, are our rock, the rock we cling to. You are our Redeemer. It is in the name of Jesus that we offer this prayer, and all who agreed with it said, Amen. Amen. So um, I, I, I did something this week that normally I don't do. Um, I entered into an online debate. Yeah. It's never a good idea. But this is one of those that I couldn't not do, partly because I just felt like I needed to stir the pot a little bit. Um, I know that's shocking, such a mild-mannered pastor that you have, right? Um, but many of you all know Reverend Shannon Blosser. Uh, Shannon was part of our Andover community for quite a while. He is now an ordained elder, serving a United Methodist Church here in the Commonwealth. Shannon and I have been friends for quite some time, um, and... Um, Shannon is an avid West Virginia University fan. Did you know this? Shocking, right? Avid West Virginia fan. He's also um, always on social media. That dude is just constantly posting and sharing and doing all this kind of stuff. Well, he posted something that just needed my wisdom. And his posting was something along the lines of, I don't understand you SEC people and how you can root from one another. It's ridiculous that you do that. It makes no sense to me. You are foolish. (laughs) To which I responded to him and said, well, Shannon, it's the SEC. It just means more. (laughs) Fantastic. He didn't like that. There was another pastor uh, in our conference who chose not from here who chimed in as well. He said, I don't cheer for a conference. I cheer for a team. And I just went, you don't get it. (laughs) You don't get it. See, I grew up in the Southeastern Conference. Most of you all knew this. Uh, I am from Florida. I am orange and blue all the way. But my best friend, when I was about 12 years old, moved from Falmouth, Kentucky to St. Petersburg, Florida. And he and I bonded very quickly over two things, Florida Gator football and University of Kentucky basketball. 
because at the time we couldn't root for our own team. <laughs> I grew up watching, especially during the winter months, UK basketball. Um, I, 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 I don't like Christian Leitner as much as most of you in this room do. Now, I have Cardinal fans, when, when I spent time in Louisville, they didn't understand that I would root for UK. Um, they think I'm out of my mind to root for these SEC teams, who I generally, many of them, don't like. Why? Because I'm primarily a University of Florida fan. I'm not buying other SEC swag or stuff. I don't have UK shirts or hats, and don't buy them for me. They'll be donated right back to you. I, I have Gator stuff. I will root for UK. But I am a Florida fan. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, because um, we're starting this new series today that's going to be challenging for most of us. I will probably, I am planning on offending many of you. I hope, though, that through that offense, we will learn and we will grow and we will deepen our own faith. Um, and that's my sincerest, sincerest desire is that when we finish this, we go, oh. So this SEC thing, we have a certain level of what we call coexisting in our conference, right? How many of you all seen the coexist bumper sticker? They're everywhere. I know a lot of Christians who have these coexist bumper stickers on their car. Here in the West, the United States and Western Europe, we're a lot like the SEC. We tend to think that all roads lead to God. We're all really a part of the same conference. May have my favorite, but it just goes this. We can go all the way back to 1795 when poet William Blake wrote, all religions are one, to see that this sentiment is really a part of who we are, part of what we do. There's an author, his name is Houston Smith, that says this, listen carefully, at base in the foothills of theology, ritual, and organizational structure, the religions are distinct, differences in culture, history, geography, collective temperament, all make for diverse starting points. But, Houston Smith says, beyond these differences, the same goal beckons. Now, in his book, God is Not One, author Stephen Prothero says, there is a comforting notion in a world in which religious violence often seems more present and potent than God to have this approach. Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, they both affirm this message of religious unity. The golden rule can be found in Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and other Eastern religions. The Enlightenment has said that religious tolerance is an absolute to freedom in our country. There is a sense that the more tolerant or united or accepting that we are, the safer and better our world should be. Correct? The purpose of those coexist bumper stickers is to pursue an end to war and violence and killing. And that makes complete sense, right? Some say that if we got rid of religion altogether that our problems would be solved, but that's a pretty naive approach. Religion certainly has been used for great evil, but it's also stood against great evil. 
religion is a way of organizing your life, your, particularly your belief system. And belief system, including atheism, creates ordered structures that help us carry out how we want to walk and live our lives. And all religions, despite their similarities and their differences, they look at the world and they see something that's gone off track. Something's awry. Something's not right. Both the belief system and the structure understand that this problem within creation, within humanity, there's something needs to be done to fix it. And religions each believe that they have the way towards this solution. Each religion, uh, like a school inside of a conference, is part of something, but each one still believes it has some level of exclusivity on truth or their approach to structuring these beliefs. If each religion sees something wrong, then each, and each religion should coexist, then why, then, do we not agree on a solution? Ever thought about that? And since we can't agree, seem to agree on a solution, is it responsible to say that they all lead to the same destination? Ah. Try telling a Muslim that their belief in Hajj, their trip to Mecca, isn't necessary. Or what would happen if a Buddhist came up to you and told you that God was imaginary and the only thing that you really needed to ascribe worth to is the great good? Talk to a Hindu about God and they may ask you which one. Well, it's comforting to pretend that the great religions make up one big happy family. It isn't a reality. And again, from Stephen Prothero, he says the idea of religious unity is wishful thinking, and it has not made the world a safer place. In fact, to think this way is dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. By the way, Stephen Prothero is not a Christian. He is a secularist. Both religious and, relig and secular scholars seem to agree that to dismiss the differences is to flirt with greater problems. We love the idea in our world of religious tolerance, especially in the West, but is tolerance and coexisting the same thing? Many of the same scholars believe that our society is actively training, especially our younger generations, in the art of conflict avoidance. We routinely reject healthy conversation and learning for the sake of not offending somebody else. We avoid thinking and believing for the more, accepted, more acceptable feeling as we process. Uh, Descartes said, what? I think, therefore I am. The mantra of our current generation is, I feel, therefore I am. And in this process, we reject respectful dialogue about differences. We prefer to agree to disagree. Heard that phrase before? And in this agreeing to disagree, all it really does is build mistrust, and it keeps us from actually knowing somebody else. Refusing to respectfully look and explore these differences is not tolerance. Since tolerance inherently means respecting or accepting the difference between you and I. That's what tolerance means. It notices that I disagree with you rather than pushes it to the side and forgets about it. If I don't know the differences of someone else, how can I be respectful of them? 
While Muslims, Jews, and Christians, we all claim monotheism, each one of them have a different value uh, for Jesus or how God is known. And while we Westerners want to make room to live and let live, to say Jesus is Savior and died and was resurrected is as much a death sentence in an Al-Qaeda camp today as it was in front of Caesar 1,900 years ago. Ask a Hindu to denounce their gods for the one true God and be ready to be dismissed or ignored. In theory, all roads and religions leading to God is a wonderful idea, but in practice, again, from Prothero, untrue, unhelpful, dangerous. Wow, we are so consumed with this avoiding of disagreement, drowning in a false sense of tolerance in our country and in our world right now, that I think we have to start from square one. We got to learn some basic frameworks. We got to remember that major religions, understanding those foundations, allow us to speak with more than just coexisting or tolerance, but with a deeper compassion to those that we differ. I'm not worried that exploring different religions is going to challenge some of us here. In fact, I hope it will. I hope we look at some of the practices from these other religions and we go, huh, that might actually make mine stronger. Uh, for instance, medieval practices of, or meditative practices of Buddhists might actually be a gift to us Christians. Meditative practices that Buddhists learn from Christians. I've already quoted him several times, but I'm indebted to the work of Stephen Prothero in his book, God is Not One. Again, not a Christian. His work and his approach have helped me and my thoughts in this series. Prothero says that each religion really has four similarities or four structures. There is a problem, there is a solution, there is a technique, and then there is an exemplar, someone who charts the path forward. And we're going to look at these four areas in four major religions over the course of this month. I think these four areas are a good start, though I will say, as I've read his description on Christianity, that it leaves much to be desired. We start with Judaism for several reasons. First, because most of us are probably more familiar with Judaism than any other religion. Second, Judaism is the source for the two largest religions in the world today. It's the grandfather, if you will, of both Christianity and Islam. Judaism starts out with a problem that the world is broken and that there is this wrongdoing of humanity that has affected everything, and this brokenness needs to be put back together. And for Jews, God chose to offer forgiveness or atonement, a path way back or back home, through a man by the name of Abram or Abraham. He is the solution. Or at least through him, there will be the solution. And God would give the children of Abraham the Torah, which is the, the technique. God's covenant, his way out of the problem. Judaism has many exemplars. Read our Old Testament and you can see both good and bad who chart the path forward. Now in the Torah, we find the law and the steps that each person is required to do in order to make peace with God. The greatest foundation of Judaism is what we read, is what Chad read for us just a minute ago. It is called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. To be a Jew is to live this saying. In essence, it's one of the earliest affirmations of faith. 
Every morning, Jews wake up to say the Shema. When they go to sleep, they say the Shema. It is to be their breath. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you must love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. From the Shema would come the Ten Commandments. Both of these hold fast to this idea that there is this one creating God who brought forth all of life. We messed it up, and God is now offering a way in which it can be full. The rest of the Hebrew scriptures, called the Tanakh, lays out the way for, the, for people to follow this God and how God's chosen people, the Hebrews and the Jews, have gone about both succeeding and failing in following. Now, what's fascinating and interesting to me is that um, though God continually acts, interacts with the Jewish people, you can't quite read the Old Testament and not see this interaction. For Judaism, God is not a knowable being. God's bigness and greatness, his omnipotence, demands that God is beyond humanity and therefore not approachable, not connectable. In other words, the nature of God or what God is like is something that cannot be known. What, what Jews do know is that there has been given away by this God to walk in his way. And walking in that way will bring this forgiveness of their sins, the atoning of their sins. And one day we'll provide them with an entrance into the world to come. Now the world to come for millennia is the restoration of the throne of David a messianic figure who would rule Jerusalem. This is still the longing of several denominations of Judaism. And yes, Judaism and many of the world religions have as many denominations as we as Christians do. We don't hold the, uh, the, the, the contract on denominationalism or splits. Christianity owes its heritage to Judaism. We agree with a similar problem of sin and brokenness, of a relationship with God that was destroyed due to our own selfish choices. Where we majorly differ is how God has revealed God's self to us. See, Christians, we believe that God is knowable, right? I mean, we just celebrated Christmas. It's called the incarnation god becoming knowable through Jesus, right? This occurs, this knowable, this knowing of God occurs through Jesus. We believe that God chose to be known in this way. We believe that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, both fully God, fully man. We also believe that this self-revealing God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the, through the person of the Holy Spirit, God's presence living inside the believers, the followers in us through that person. Most of Christian doctrine and belief comes from the Hebrew scriptures. We even believe that there's precedent for the Trinity in those Jewish scriptures. We agree in brokenness and lostness. We believe in an atoning work is needed to restore God's intention. We read those same Hebrew passages and we see a God who is knowable and who has promised us Jesus. We clearly see him as the Messiah. And so, of course, this makes us, it forces us to ask a question why then do, not, do more Jews not believe? I, I think some of this answer is found early on in the book of Acts, chapter 6. We see a splinter that starts to get in and wedge its way in. The church is growing. There is this need that the church is filling. And in that need, there is an ugly little piece that shows its sinful, broken side. In the book of Acts, we read about this group called the Hellenized Jewish Widows. Now, these were Jewish Christian women who were less practicing. 
and they were being ignored, or at least their perception was that they were being ignored in the daily distribution of food. And you know, perception's reality, right? Their perception was that they were being skipped over for the more observing Jewish Christian widows. So the book of Acts needs to address this. And you can track the rest of the book of Acts and you can see there's this religious system, this way of belief, that is now facing a new group of people that used to be on the outside that are now taking part in the promises that God had given. So by the late first century, certainly by the second, you have this growing tension between the believers of Jewish descent and the believers of Gentile descent. Roman Christians, um, they loved the teaching of Jesus, but anti-Semitism was part of their culture. Um, Jews were misunderstood and associated with gross misrepresentations of their faith. So it was easier to say, well, you Jews killed Jesus. Hmm. Why would any Jewish person want to adopt a religion of a people who hate them? Why would they want to flush their culture for something different? I have found that many faithful Jewish people refuse to think about the prophecies that we read about that point to Jesus, mainly because of the association with so much pain and hate. This is a broad brush, I believe that, but I really do think that anti-Semitism continues to put a wall between Jews and Christians to this day. And anti-Semitism can have a whole lot of different looks, not just picketing and not just people driving in crowds and yelling and doing all kinds of nasty things, but it can be in the form of policies that aren't really helpful. And to this, I would say, we've got to find something more than just coexisting, more than just a you-do-you, this kind of hyper-tolerant state. What's needed is the opportunity to sit and to dialogue, to appreciate differences, to learn from one another, to boldly to continue to hold on to our love, to our beliefs, but to do so with a level of Jesus-style love that would, gladly, that would gladly hurt over this kind of divide. Christianity's favorite apostle, Paul, once said that he would be gladly cut off from the grace of Christ if it meant for his people, the Jews, that they would be saved. When was the last person, follower of Jesus, when was the last time, follower of Jesus, that you saw someone that you disagreed with, that you knowingly disagreed with, and said, I would be gladly cut off from the grace of Christ if they would know the love of God? See, that's not coexisting, and that's not tolerance. That's deep love of Jesus kind of thing right there. And that's the kind of thing that we're called to as his followers. That's the kind of thing that we're invited to do instead of just go, ah, I don't know, We'll just agree to disagree. There is an opportunity for many of us to look at the evils of the world, things like Holocaust and when Hitler used Christianity to conscript uh, and, and create this final solution, to accept that the Inquisition used to expel Jews from Spain, the same thing happened under English rule in our country where recently there were still country clubs that would not allow Jews to be members and swastikas are still painted on walls. And we've witnessed plenty of rallies in the last several months of anti-Semitism. There is an opportunity for us, the followers of Jesus, to be more, to do more than just coexist. May we find the courage and the revelation of Jesus to do so. Would you pray with me?
Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to explore and to stretch and, and to challenge, really, some things that, um, that come very naturally to us, especially as Americans. Lord, we thank you for a country that says religious freedom matters and that we are free to believe what we, uh, we believe. But Lord, we also reject the idea of, of, of a tolerance that just says, um, I'm not going to get to know you, for that's not the way of Jesus. And so, I, I, Lord, I ask that you would invite us to, uh, to critically think about these things that we claim as our own and, and that we, would, we might find in the revelation of Jesus today on this Epiphany Sunday uh, a deeper desire to share you, to reveal you, to share your kind of love and compassion that is so much more than coexisting or just tolerance. Help us to love radically. Help us to respect the differences. But help us to, to remember and realize that we do believe that you came and you've offered a greater way. So release us to be that kind of people. Jesus, thank you for this day and for this time and for this opportunity in this new year. We love you, we honor you, and we adore you. For it is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said, amen.